Good morning. Wow, that was a better good morning than clap, that's for sure. Good to see you all. Glad you're here. I, I tell you what, let's wake up just a little bit. Everybody stand up. Let, let's do this. I know some of you hate this. That's okay. We're going to be friendly today. Go give a hug to somebody around you. I, I don't care where they are. Just find someone and give them a hug. Hey, Lynn. Hey, Lynn. Lynn Ferrier. Give him a hug. enough of this friendly hug stuff. Everybody sit down. Really glad you're here. <coughs> well, we are, well, I am coughing my way through everything today. Excuse me. Six weeks now. We'll get this done eventually. But we are really, we are wrapping up this series called Loving the One, Leading the Ones We Love. And uh, I've done it for six or seven weeks. I should know the title by now. Anyway, this is the last weekend in that, and it's all about impacting the people around us. Now, I don't know about you, but I've felt this deep desire most of my adult life to be able to connect to the next generation, provide some guidance, some counsel, some support, some leading, because where this next generation is right now, believe it or not, we've actually been there. Now, different times, different experiences, different ways, but God wants us to lead the people that are following us, and, and we need to step up and do that. But it's a challenge because none of us have really been taught how to lead the next generation or how to lead our friends or how to lead our spouses. And because we haven't been trained on that, we struggle a little bit. But here's something we can all agree on. We want everyone that's in our, 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 our influence, everyone that we love, everyone that we care about, we want them all to find the incredible life that God has planned for them, right? I don't think any of us don't want that for the people around us. We want everyone that we love to find what God's plan is for them and find out how much he loves them. But, but for all of us to do that, we need to go, well, what do they need exactly? Well, maybe, again, if it's our kids or our, our friends or our spouses, we want them to be happy. We want them to be healthy. We want them to be loving. We want them to be kind. We want them to, to be respectful because we want to, to be all those things to them. And, and the top priority, no matter if it's a spouse, a friend, a child, the top priority in anyone's life as we deal with them is we want them to be godly. Now, I know that's countercultural today, right? It might even be anti-cultural to say you want your kids, your friends, your spouse to be godly. But here's what happens when they're godly. They get to live out these things that only make us better, right? They get to live out the Galatians 5 stuff. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And do any of us not want that for our kids? Do any of us not want our kids to be loving and kind and gentle and patient, have joy and peace? If you do, then you need to check yourself because those things are so important 
in the values and lives of our kids. But those things are also incredibly important in the relationships of our marriages. We need to make sure that Galatians 5 is part of our marriage, and that's a godly part of our marriage, but it consists of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Do any of you that are married not want a little bit of peace in your marriage? Don't raise your hand if your spouse is sitting around. Do you want some love in your marriage? Do you want some patience in your marriage? Do you want faithfulness in your marriage? These things come naturally from God. And as we lead and as we kind of pour into our spouses, we have to lead with these things from God and hope that God gets a hold of them so they can lead with those things in their lives. And how about our friendships? Any of your friendships need a little love in them, a little joy, a little hope, a little patience? I think all of our friendships do. And that's what we want for our friends, and that's what we want for ourselves, because we know that this godliness in our our personal lives is different than the culture around us. It just is. And that's how we lead. We lead by being different. We lead by leaning on God to provide those things in our lives. That's what changes people. It's not going with the flow. It's going against it, right? It's doing things that no one else is doing. And trust me, in today's culture, no one else is doing these things. It's not a priority in our current culture. But what happens? What happens if the people that you love, the people that you want to lead, the people that you're close to, what happens if they choose to walk away from your values and your thoughts and your faith? What happens if they choose not to follow the godly way of life? What do you do with that? What happens if the people that you love choose a different way, a different path? Are any of you dealing with that right now in your lives? Your kids, your marriages, your friendships, they seem to be walking a different path. And maybe it's a personal choice. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's, it's just something that's happening in their lives and they've given into something or they've walked away from something and that's how they're living and you hate that. Look around this room. Seriously, look around. The people you just gave a hug to, look behind them, beyond them, in front of them because the people in this room right now, moms and dads and grandparents and husbands and wives and friends, some of them have had their hearts ripped out because of the choices of people in their lives that they love. And they're broken and they're hurting and they don't know what to do and they don't know where to go because they love those people and they're, they're worried about them and it destroys their lives and the people they love their lives. Lifestyle choices, addiction issues, faith issues, or no faith. All those things come to play for us. Are you dealing with that right now? I know at least 30 people in this room that I have personally talked to that are dealing with those exact scenarios in your lives. Can I just pray for all of you right now, including our people online? Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Father God, I'm praying for everyone listening to this teaching of yours. God, may you just reach out and hold them and love them and support them and surround them and provide for them.
God, we're not responsible for anybody else's choices but our own. But God, that doesn't mean that it doesn't break our heart because we love them and it breaks your heart when people choose to walk down wrong paths or different roads than what you want them to walk down. God, I'm praying for your love to pull through in this. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, typically what we do is we go, well, you, you know, let's look at the Bible and find some great scriptures and, and, again, and follow some examples of people that have been down this road and what they did and how they did it. The, the challenge is the Bible is full of messed up relationships. You don't find healthy ones in there. You know that, except for Jesus and his father. You don't find any other healthy relationships. It's all about messed up families. Those are the examples that you have. You know, people that didn't get it right, people that chose to walk away, people that have issues, who have value challenges. That's who you find in the scripture. I don't know. It's full of people that have chosen at some point in time in their lives to just walk away from God. Let's go to the very beginning. You ever heard of these brothers named Cain and Abel? Have you heard of those people? Somebody tell me something about Cain and Abel. There's murder involved. Yeah, it's a murder story. What else? Siblings. Jealousy. Dis- what was that? Adam and Eve. Yeah. Adam and Eve's firstborn kids. You know who Adam and Eve were? They were the original human beings, right? I mean, they're the original, the, the, the point one version, right? You know, God created them with his own hands. There, there they go, right? That's Adam and Eve. Cain and Abel are the firstborn sons of Adam and Eve. <laughs> now, that's pretty cool because when you look at the beginning, you're going, okay, they had no idea how to be parents, right? I, I mean, you know, you got two, two, two boys, your first two sons, there's going to be conflict. That's the way families work. Let, let's read Genesis 4, all right? Genesis 4, starting in verse 3. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. Now, stop right there. and Let's focus in, all right? Cain brought some of his crops, some, not the first, not the best, just some. I've got a few laying around here. God, I'll give you those. You know, whatever. Yeah, they're a little bit rotten. They're a little bit whatever. It was, you know, they, they didn't take in whatever. They're, they're a little bit bug-ridden. You don't mind that, God. I, I know it's not much for you. So you get what's left over here. Abel brought the best that he had. The best lambs, the first lambs, the, one that were, the ones that weren't sick. They weren't weak. They, they weren't blemished in any way. That, that's, who, that's who Abel brought uh, to, to, to God. Now, there's a difference there, and it's an important difference. God always asks for our first and our best. God provides us with everything. He says, give me your first 10%. That way you learn how to trust me. You learn how to, to do life trusting someone other than yourself and trusting something other than your wealth, right? Give me the first 10%. The rest of your life's going to go well because that puts everything in order. So you have Cain and Abel, one is doing that, one is not. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain angry. He looked dejected. 
Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain? Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. Hold on to that thought. Think about your life. Are you doing what's right? Let's put it in today's perspective. Are you doing, are you offering, are you sacrificing to God what God asks you to sacrifice the right way to do it? It's a good question for you. But if you refuse to do what's right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. One day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. Let me just say this. If you have a brother and they ask you to go out into the fields during Christmas, you might want to hold back a little bit. All right, because this story doesn't end up too well. And while they were in the fields, in the woods, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Hmm. First son's born. The first two sons of Adam and Eve. The conflict that's happening there is huge. The jealousy. The, 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 the lashing out. The... the, the, the uneasiness between brothers happening in here. Now, you, you look at that, and you're going, okay, how does this work? I, I, mean, I mean, seriously, how does this work? Because some of our kids, some of us, we react in that same way that Cain was reacting, right? We lash out. We, we don't like anybody telling us what to do. Nobody's going to tell me how to live my life, not even God. I'll live it how I want to live it. And, and, and you think that, that, that since Cain killed his brother Abel, that he would be instantly rejected for that because he was disobeying God. He wasn't following God, which is what we do with the people who sin against us or the people that disappoint us or the people that we consider really bad type sinners and this is murder, and so it gets in the really bad type sinners category, right? Because when you kill somebody, it doesn't start just there usually. You know, there's, there's conflict that's happening. There's jealousy. There's hatred. There's anger. All that stuff is building up, and that's what's building up between Cain and Abel. And then we just kind of shove them off. You go to prison for being a murderer. You don't come out and walk right back into society. Why? Because we shun them. We put them on the outside because of what they did and how they live and what's kind of part of their life. But, but don't miss this. God is still loving them. He's still loving Cain, right? He doesn't, he doesn't reject him completely. God is still talking to him. God is still there for them, although there are consequences. Look at uh, Genesis 4, verse 10. But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed up your brother's blood. No longer will the ground, the ground yield good crops from you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you'll be a homeless wanderer on the earth. So Cain is a farmer, and God's going, it's not going to be so easy anymore for you. Because of what you've done, here's some of the consequences for your actions. You're going to and he says, it's too big of a punishment. You've banished me from the land and from your presence and have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. And God wants to make sure that Cain knows that he's still there for him, but he has to suffer some of the consequences. The Lord replied, no, for I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. 
Then the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. So God's going, Cain, I'm going to take care of you. I'm not going to let you be murdered. I'm not going to let them kill you for what you did to your brother. I'm still going to be here to protect you, and I still love you. Now, what do you think Adam and Eve felt during this moment? Yeah, hurt, broken, sorrowful, deep mourning. These are their first two sons. How do you handle that? One son, there's been arguments, complaints, bickering their whole lives. One son kills your other son, and then the son that kills your other son is banished, and he's not around anymore. That's a parent's worst nightmare. What do you think Adam and Eve were feeling? How deep do you think that brokenness went? I bet they were asking themselves the same questions that we would be asking ourselves. What did we do wrong? God, what, we love these boys. What did we do wrong? Why did they end up the way that they ended up? How, how, how did this happen to us? We didn't raise them right. We didn't love them enough. Friends, listen to me. Sometimes things happen. Sometimes the people that you love will walk away from you and walk away from God because it's part of their story and their plan and it has nothing to do with you. It doesn't matter what you did or did not do. What matters are the choices that they're making for their own lives. And you can't control those. Your children, your spouse, your friends. You're responsible for controlling your actions and your deeds. And you're responsible for walking with God yourself. But you can't be responsible for that for anyone else. Although it doesn't take the heartache away, does it? And it doesn't take the pain away. Look what God, God does. Again, he, he does that. I'll put a mark on you and I will spare you. I will save you. And he takes care of him for the rest of his life. How about a different scenario? How about, I don't know, another pretty prominent couple in the Bible. How about David and Bathsheba? You know anything about them? Bathsheba's a name you don't easily forget, right? I mean, it, it just is. Um, you, you know the story? David's a king. David starts out as a little shepherd boy who kills a giant with a slingshot and a stone. It's a pretty cool story. They kind of leave God out of that whole picture because God kind of directed this. Anyway, but you got a stone, you got a slingshot, and David takes credit for it all, right? He, he's the guy who was so godly so moral, so upright, that when he was getting ready to take over a kingdom, King Saul's kingdom, Saul's right there in a cave where David could kill him and instantly take over the kingship for the nation. But instead, because he's so godly, he's so moral, he backs away and he doesn't kill him. He says, God, I'm not going to do this. When it's my time, I will rise, but I'm not going to take advantage of this. That's a pretty upstanding thing right, for this guy to do. This is a guy who was called a man after God's own heart. But guess what? He still chose to walk away from God. He still chose to give in to his temptations. He chose to have another affair. And he even had a friend killed 
so he wouldn't be caught. Does that sound like a man after God's own heart? Does that sound like a person walking with God at that moment? Here, here's first Sam, or 2 Samuel 11. It says, late one afternoon after his midday rest, nice he's taking siesta there, David got out of bed, was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, David's the king. I mean, David can do whatever he chooses to do. God has blessed him more than anybody else in the nation, and David already had a harem of women in his life, but he let temptation get the better of him. He saw her, he wanted her, so what did he do? He took her. That's what he did. Even after he was told that she was the wife of one of his mighty men, one of his best soldiers, one of the guys that was willing to lay down his life for David, his name was Uriah, it didn't matter. Because in the middle of the temptation, David wanted what he wanted. He walked away from God. He walked away from his values. He walked away from his morals, and he ended up sleeping with Bathsheba, the rest of the scripture. David sent messengers to get him, get her, and when she came into the palace, he slept with her. Now, like, this is a real-life circumstance happening. But it was almost like a movie. Because not only did he sleep with her, but she got pregnant. And so now she's pregnant. So he had to do something to cover up the pregnancy because Uriah, her husband, has been on the front lines of the battle for a long time. He hasn't been home. This could not be his child. There's no way it could be his child. So David kind of formulates his plan. Get him home. Make sure he can be with her so nobody will find out. And they'll think that she got pregnant while he was home on leave. Right? Kind of the way it's working. Uriah said, I'm not going to be with my wife because I'm in the middle of this battle. I don't want to dishonor God and I don't want to dishonor you as my friend and my king. I won't do that. And so what's David do? He kills a person that was willing to lay down his life for him. He killed the husband of Bathsheba. I wasn't going to use this part, but I love it. All right, and it's 2 Samuel 12. And this is where Nathan, who's a prophet, and he's a pretty direct guy. He's a pretty just, this is the way it is kind of guy. He comes to David because God sent him there, and he said, there were two men in a certain town. One rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. All right, now remember, he's talking about David here so, and Uriah, so don't miss this. But the poor man had nothing except the little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. He shared his food with it. It drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man. Whenever somebody would travel through town, you'd open up your home, you'd provide a meal for them, whatever. So a traveler comes to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger when Nathan told him this story. Right? He burned 
with anger. He said, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you're that man. You're the man that just did that. You have everything. You have a harem. You have more women in your life than you could ever even hope to have. And yet you chose to steal the one woman of one of your best friends, one of your mighty men, one of the people that love you, and you got her pregnant. That's on you. Now, he could have been killed for saying that. It's the king. But Nathan spoke truth to him. So what happened? (laughs) David repents. David changes. David says, "I, I can't be more sorry for this. It's absolutely wrong, and God didn't give up on him. Now, now again, understand, there are consequences, but God continued to use him. There are consequences. He slept with Bathsheba. They weren't married. They have a son who's pretty prominent in the Bible, Solomon. But God forgave him, and God continued to use him, even after the murder and the adultery. Let's take another one, maybe for you who are parents. You know the story of the prodigal? The prodigal son? Most of us do. And most of us, especially as parents, because most of us have had to struggle through some of this, right? I mean, we, we, just, we, we just have. The son takes his inheritance, he leaves, he blows it all, God welcomes him back home. That's kind of the just of the story, Right? I want to read this article that I found this week. It's, it's just really relevant, uh, kind of retelling of this story in a different way. This woman says, Our last child, another boy, graced us with his presence in 2006. He always seemed angry. He was also very tender and sweet, and then would turn around and throw the biggest tantrum that has ever been thrown. You relate to any of that? Any of you have a child like that? With each child, we realized that some of the tools we had worked, that some of the tools we had worked and some did not. We tried to learn from other parents and gain new tools for our tool belt. We tried to work with each child's specific bent. Basically, we began to realize that with our first four, we were able to be coaches. Little actual parenting had to happen. Again, we thought we were brilliant. Our last one, with me at 40, my husband at 43, required us to be real parents. We had so much to learn. As our children grew and normal activities, misadventures, ballyhoo took place, we could see some of the giftings that God had given to each of our, ch- our children. Our last child, though, had giftings that would be great as an adult, but had to be channeled wisely to be positives. They could quickly turn to, to negatives and place him in a position he did not want to be in. We noticed things like impulsivity, no fear of just about anything, older than his years, humor, a brilliant vocabulary and working of his mind, and skill at always placing the blame on someone else for his behavior. Did these sound familiar to any of you? Calls from the school were not abnormal, and my prayer, every time I saw that school number scroll across my phone, was please let this be the nurse telling me that he cracked his skull on something. But it never was that. It was always some trouble that this child had gotten into. 
He has been sent to the alternative school twice. He does really well there, but eventually he has to come out and begin to learn how to interact among the world. He has gotten into drugs and made other bad decisions. And I'm on a first-name basis with his principals and counselors. All of these actions remind me of the story of the prodigal son. And she kind of gives a brief description of the prodigal son. She says in the story, the youngest of the two sons basically asked for his father to die so he can take his share of the family inheritance. I'm always amazed at how it seems like the father takes this request so easily. I wonder if over the years the son had this, his share of troubles and the father had witnessed or had to be a part of it all. The son takes the money happily, goes on his way, only to squander all of it in short order. He finally realizes that even the servant of his father's house, house are treated better than he is, and he makes his way home. At this part, gets me every time, she says. The son walks along the road, leading to his childhood home. As he draws near, he's watching and wanting, he's watching and waiting, and the father sees him and runs towards his son. He orders a lavish celebration to share the news that his younger son has returned. And clearly the father never lost his love for the son. He treated him with the utmost love and dignity, both upon leaving and returning. Hold on to that line. He treated him with the utmost love and dignity, both upon leaving and returning. How are we treating our prodigal kids? How are we treating the people that have chosen to walk away, to walk a different path? Let me read you the actual scripture from, from the prodigal son, Luke 15. A man had two sons. A younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. And, and I read that, and kind of like the lady in the, that, that wrote her story, you know that didn't just happen, right? You know one day he doesn't wake up and say, give me my inheritance, I don't love you, I don't like you, I don't want to be here, I'm entitled to everything. We're in an entitled generation. I'm entitled to everything. Give me my inheritance and give it to me now. Can you just feel the years and years and years of challenge, of conflict, of struggle that's been happening in this family? And his father agrees. All right, son, you, you get what you want because I love you. Yeah, whatever, just give it to me. Can you imagine how brokenhearted the father was at that? I mean, I'm giving this to you because I love you, but he doesn't want to hear that. The kid doesn't want to hear any of that. The kid just wants to go his way, do his thing, and not worry about any consequences of it. And you know that this father wanted to keep a relationship there. And that's why he gave him his inheritance. Again, a few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings, moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all of his money in wild living. If that's your child or your grandchild or your friend's child, let me give you a few just tips on what to do in this scenario. Here's the first one. Keep loving them. No matter what they've done, no matter how bad it is, no matter how they're living, keep loving them. Don't miss this. Never, 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 never give up. Never. 
Never give up on them. Keep constantly loving them. Don't stop. Again, it doesn't matter what they've done, and it doesn't matter where they're living or how they're living, how they're living. It doesn't matter. Keep loving them because they're important to you, and you don't want to let that go. Here's the second thing. Connect with them always. Never stop the communication. Now, you understand at this, this moment in time, they probably don't want to speak to you, right? At this moment in time, when they're walking away, when they're leaving, they know what you believe, they know why you believe it, and they don't want to hear about it because they're going to live their life and do it their way, right? Never stop reaching out to them. Yeah, I know you're going to get shut down. I know they're going to say, I don't love you, I don't want you around me, I don't even like you, whatever. Never stop trying to connect. Even when they're shouting at you, even when they're making fun of you, even when they've done everything to discourage you, you keep encouraging them. Always connect. Here's the next thing you need to do. Establish some boundaries. It's never okay for you to physically, verbally, or emotionally be abused. Never. That's never okay. You set the boundaries and you hold to the boundaries. I love you, but you can't stay in this house as long as those are your responses and your attitudes. I will always love you, but you can't do that to your sibling. You can't do that to your father. You can't do that to your mother. That's not acceptable. And those boundaries cannot be broken. Establish those. Here's another one. Get some help. You need somebody pouring into your life. There is nothing embarrassing, nothing wrong, nothing harmful about going to a Christian counselor and saying, I can't handle this on my own. I'm breaking. I'm broken. I can't do this anymore. And I need a way out. I need a plan. I need somebody guiding me on a, on a weekly basis, giving me some hope and some steps for me to take. Find a Christian counselor and get yourself some help. Because you shouldn't have to live that way. Here's another thing for you to do. Love your spouse. If it's a child, love your spouse. There's nothing that breaks up marriages more than when you're trying to figure out how to deal with kids that have chosen to walk away because you're both broken. You're both hurting. You both have this heartache that's so big you don't know where to turn or where not to turn. But we tend to take it out on our spouses. Love your spouse even more through the middle of this because you're going to need each other to make it through this life. This woman goes on to say this, parenting a prodigal is far from easy. My favorite quote states, even God, the, the perfect parent, has children who are rebellious, so who are we to think that we won't? Hmm. She said, I've always loved this quote, but these days it holds a special place in my heart. The very same place my youngest son occupies. I will love this kid forever as I love all of his siblings. I am absolutely the perfect mom for him. And my husband is the perfect dad for him. There's been no mistake. Listen, God created your family. And you're part of that family. It's not an accident. God put you together. God put these kids into your lives. It doesn't matter what, 
what issues, challenges, lifestyles they have. God puts you there for a specific reason. You're the perfect parent for them. You're perfect to walk through life with them. You need help, you need support, you need encouragement, but you are perfect. And never forget what the father does at the end of the prodigal son story. This kid returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house. Put it on him. Get a ring for his finger, sandals for his feet. Kill the calf that we've been fattening. You must celebrate with a feast, for my son was dead, and now he's returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found, and the party began. Never give up because your prodigal child, your prodigal spouse, your prodigal friend, they may never come home again, but never give up on them. And if they should show up, open up your arms and welcome them home. Wrap your arms around them and love them. And say, you know what? Your past doesn't matter. All that matters is your future. Will you pray with me? Father God, I pray specifically right now for everyone in this room and everyone that's watching online, for everyone that's dealing with a friend, a a spouse, a child that have chosen just to walk away. God, may you encourage them and love them. May you bring hope to their lives. May you bring peace to their hearts. And I pray that in Jesus' name.